Well, hey, everybody, I hope you were paying close attention because I'm going to ask everybody right now at our Hayward campus and our Fremont campus to take out a piece of paper, pop quiz. How many of those names of Jesus did you remember? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Some of, you, some of you guys looked really worried, like your blood pressure just went up, like back in those days in high school, right? I am so glad you're here tonight. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It is so good to see you. I'm so thankful for my friends in Hayward and my friends in Fremont. I hope you'll pull out your outline and follow along and take some notes. And we're kicking off this new series, Who the Blank is Jesus? And all those names for Jesus should tell you how complex he is. For many, Jesus has become a simple, two-dimensional character. We have these images. We don't really understand the fullness and complexity of Jesus and his personality. And as we go into this crazy, wild ride called the Christmas season together, we wanted to take a few weeks and look at Jesus a little more closely to really look at this gift that God has given us. In fact, I want to ask you to do something for me right now. I want to ask everyone to just close your eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes for a moment. Imagine Jesus, he just walked into your living room and he sat down to spend some time with you. What do you see? What is the expression on his face? Is it a serious, holy expression? Does he look a little upset? Or does he look glad to be there? How does he make you feel? Well, go ahead and open your eyes. I just think it's interesting sometimes to think, what, is, what comes to mind when you think about Jesus? If he walked into your home and he sat down with you, what would come to mind? You know, the most important thought that ever crosses our mind is what we think about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus. It's so important because Jesus is God. He's God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus came to make God known, to make God real to us, to reveal his heart. Jesus told his followers, he says, this is what the Father's like. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. And how we see Jesus is a big deal. Our view of God shapes our worldview and how we live, the choices that we make, what we do with our life, how we treat others. Our view of Jesus helps us wrestle with key questions. Does God care? Or is he a God watching somewhere from a distance, uninvolved? Is he all-powerful or is he just waiting for me to mess up so he can get me? Is he loving is he my judge who I must give an account to for my life? Or can I just do whatever I want? The image you have of Jesus affects your whole life. And I believe the more you know Jesus, the more you know the true Jesus, the more you know about him and see him for who he really is, the easier it will be to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so where do we get our image of God from? Where does that come from? For so many of us, it comes from, you know, our childhood, the image and impressions we got from our parents about God, how our parents treated us, the, the people around us, if we had exposure to a church, what kind of church it was. But I want to encourage us to look at two key places to go to, to find an accurate view of Jesus. So Fremont and Hayward, I hope you'll follow along on your outline and take some notes. The Bible gives us the clearest possible picture of Jesus. God's word tells us why Jesus is so important and why it matters what we think about him. So the first thing there on your outline I'd like you to write down is God's word reveals Jesus' supremacy, his supremacy. It's an amazing passage in Colossians chapter 1. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus 
is God with skin and bones. He existed before anything was created, and he is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything. He created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Man, that's a pretty rich passage. I mean, right there, what does the Bible tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he's God, that he's the creator that he's the head of the church, and that he's our peacemaker who reconciles our relationship with God. It tells us that Jesus is supreme. Can you circle that word supreme? Now, I don't know what kind of pizza you like, but he's not talking about supreme pizza. That's usually the one I get at Pizza Hut, you know, with all the stuff on it. Supreme's a lot richer word than that. Supreme, it means superior to all others, the highest in quality, the highest in authority, the greatest, the best, the most important. Man, the Bible tells us the universe revolves around Jesus. And in the midst of all that, of how supreme and great Jesus is, it's amazing what he did for us. Because the Bible tells us all have sinned, all of us have disobeyed God, all of us have gone our own way, and in spite of that, Jesus took it upon himself to make us right with God, to reconcile us with God through his blood. In other words, one Friday about 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to the cross for my sins, and he went to the cross for your sins. That was the original Black Friday. He paid the price for our forgiveness. He did for you what no one else can do. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he turns that Black Friday into what we call Good Friday. That's why we're here as a church. We're here as a church to point people to Christ, to help lead seekers who don't know God, to lead them to fall in love with Jesus. And you know what? Jesus would want more this Christmas from you than anything else is your heart, your heart of devotion and love to him. He'd like you to understand how amazing he is, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, and he'd like you to commit your life to follow him and help other people fall in love with Jesus. Now, just a quick reminder, that's why we talked last week about our birthday present to Jesus. That's why we're here. We want to do everything we can. This year is so important to give Jesus the best birthday present you can next week so we can continue to spread this message about Jesus. Everything about our life story begins and ends with Jesus. Look what John Eldridge says there on your outline. He says, we need Jesus like we need oxygen, like we need water, like the branch needs the vine. Jesus is not merely a figure for devotions. He's the missing essence of your existence. Whether we know it or not, we are desperate for Jesus. A philosopher said, you know, without Jesus, you have this God-shaped hole in your heart that only Jesus can fill. Our very soul, our very being thirsts to know God, to know Jesus. And so when we say, who the blank is Jesus, he's everything. And that's why we're going to spend these next six weeks together looking at different aspects of who Jesus is. When you take a moment, let's just pray together for just a moment. Jesus, as we go into these next six weeks together, God, I pray that you would help us to get a clearer picture of who you are. I want to thank you for coming. Thank you for taking it upon yourself to, to pay for my sins, to reconcile us to your Father. And God, show us your supremacy. Remove any veil and misunderstandings we have about you, but help us to really understand your nature, the fullness of who you are, God, and help us to fall more in love with you than ever. Amen.
So today, we're looking at the playful side of Jesus. So if I were to ask you, does God have a sense of humor, what would you say? Just look at me, right? Do you think Jesus does? I mean, how you answer the question reveals a lot about what you think about him. Now, I want to say, as we're talking about the playfulness of Jesus, the truth is, you know, he wasn't all play, but he wasn't all work. The Bible says there's a time to laugh, and there's a time to cry. There's a time to be playful, there's a time to be serious. And the truth is, some of you here tonight, you may be going through some really tough things in your life right now, and it's just hard for you to even imagine the playfulness of Jesus. But that is part of who he is. For some of us, we're just too focused on the serious stuff, the problems all the time, the the complexities of all the issues going on in the world around us. I try not to even watch the news anymore. I just read a few of the headlines. The world just seems so messed up and so hateful. We get focused on all the problems. And I think we need to stop and remember that God wants us to take time to be playful because of who he is and because he's in our life. And the Bible's full of examples of God's humor. I'd love to do a series on the humor of God, but just a, few, just a few examples, just bullet points. Remember Abraham when he was 99 years old? God told him and his 90-year-old wife, you're going to have a child. <laughs> and they laughed. And you know what God named their son? Isaac means laughter. Then there was, a, there was a disobedient prophet named Balaam, and God spoke to him through his donkey to get his attention. I mean, can you imagine? Does God have a sense of humor? Gideon destroys Baal's altar and his Asherah poles, and the people want to kill him, and his dad comes out and says, hey, if Baal's so powerful, let Baal defend himself. I mean, I think God puts these stories in there because he he thought that was funny. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, you know, that thing you see in the Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? That's where the the covenant, the, the tablets, the Ten Commandments were, and it represented God's presence with them. And they capture this Ark of the Covenant, they bring it into their camp by their idol of their God, Dagon, and in the morning when they wake up, their idol's face down in front of the Ark of God. People are all upset, they're standing back up, you know what happens the second night? The idol falls down at the Ark again, but its arms and legs are broken off. <laughs> I mean, that's funny to me. David got so caught up in worship that he comes into town dancing in his underwear, Why did God include that in the story in the Bible? I think he thought it was pretty funny too. And then there's Jesus. Don't think he didn't know how to have fun. I mean, his first miracle was at a wedding party where he turned turned the water into wine so they could keep going with their reception. Jesus teased Nathaniel when he met Nathaniel. Nathaniel was so impressed that Jesus knew what he said when he wasn't even there. And Jesus said, huh, you're impressed about that. Wait till you see what else I'm going to do. He, he, called, he teased Peter, and he called Peter the rock because he had been the most unstable one of the group. On more than one occasion, Jesus used spit in healing miracles. I'm glad he didn't use that in the miracle with the water into wine, by the way. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, and you know what? There was a basket left over for each disciple to make sure they got the point. I think that's a little playful, if you ask me. Jesus said some funny stuff in his culture and in his day, and he loved to do a little wordplay. He told the Pharisees, you blind leaders, you strain out a small fly, but you swallow a camel. You know, he says, you're so careful to, to, to follow these tiny little laws, but you miss the point and you swallow a camel. And those words in, in his language are very close. They sounded a lot alike. So it was a little wordplay and they would find a lot of humor in that. And we could go on and on and on. But I think the Bible, when we, we look at it with those eyes that, man, God sometimes has a playful side. And that's 
we experience that. Number two on your outline, creation reveals God's existence, his power, and his playfulness. Romans tells us this. The basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. His eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his design being. I mean, Paul says, hey, take a look at the creation around you. What does it tell you about God? What does it tell you about God? Now, you always take your conclusions when you look at creation and you put them up with the Bible, make sure it doesn't contradict the Bible. But we can see so much about God through creation. When you look at a finely crafted watch, I know a lot of you don't have watches anymore, right? So let's say when you look in, open up and look inside your smartphone and you see all those little circuits and pieces of it, right? Do you think that just happened by accident? No, it's too complex. It's too, it's too complicated. You know that there's a creator, that there's a designer, that there's an engineer, someone who, who made that. And when you look at this amazing creation that we live in, how complex, how everything works together, and you have to know that there's a designer, that life as it exists on this planet, everything is just too perfect for it all to work together for us to have life. You look at creation, what else does it tell you? You think about places maybe you've been, beautiful places you visited, like Niagara Falls or the Blue Ridge Mountains in the fall in Virginia. That's some of my favorite places I've been. Hiking a mountain in Korea, seeing the fall colors, a waterfall. Lake Tahoe, Yosemite, Hawaii, volcanoes. What does that tell you about God? He's powerful. He's artistic. He's creative. He likes variety. And what else can we learn from creation by taking a thoughtful look? Well, let's, let's look at a few examples together. Let's see some pictures here. I mean, God made cute, playful little puppies. Every little puppy, every little kitten loves to play, right? There's your cute little playful animal. Let's see. Oh, grumpy kitty. <laughs> grumpy kitty. And look at this. I mean, llamas, I don't know, with some fantastic hairstylists. But see, you guys, I mean, what does that tell you about God? Why did he make things so different, so creative? And let's see our next picture. A platypus. I mean, have you ever really looked at a platypus? It looks like he got all the leftover parts. You know, like God was just finishing up. And then God gives us the ability to, to laugh and have fun together, to, to enjoy life, and, and, and just created us with a sense of humor. And that's one of the things I love about Pastor Paul. This was, this was at a, a, a lip sync battle. You can turn that off now. But God gives us the ability to be playful, to have fun together, to, to laugh. And God created laughter. He gave us the capacity to laugh. He said, his word says there's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. And I believe God laughs. I believe he laughs with joy. The Bible also says he laughs at people who say, you know, they defy God and they think that they're, they're somehow going to control God or, or defeat him. Laughter is something God created, and just like anything that God created, it can be used for good or it can be used for bad, right? There's a laughter shared between close family members and friends, but there's also the mocking laughter of enemies or foes. There's belittling. There's dirty, crude joking the Bible warns us against. Now, I know some of you might find this hard to believe, but when I was in high school, I had a class of about 350 students. I was one of the two or three class clowns. I know that's really hard to believe. And uh, we didn't vote for those little things in the yearbook, but all my friends said, man, if we voted, you'd be, the, you'd be the funniest. You'd be the class clown. 
This is before clowns were creepy, okay, by the way. That's how old, that's how old I am. And you know, I had a friend, Bob Moyer, and we used to, I don't know if you guys remember that show, um, Welcome Back, Cotter. And you know how they'd sit around and crack jokes on each other? Well, I had a friend, Bob. We were like that. We'd crack jokes on each other. We were so good. Our band director, we were in the band together. He'd have us stay after class, and he'd keep score, and he'd just be rolling. And Bob and I, he was a little older than me, and we found out we had the same teacher, and we sat in the same desk in different periods. And so we would leave each other notes and our little jokes and cracks about each other in the desk. We'd fold them up. We were open. And man, we'd get into class. We couldn't wait to get to English class and read that. Man, we'd be laughing. This went on for a few weeks. My teacher, Mrs. DeWitt, she was the most kind, mildest, petite little teacher in the school. And one day I opened up my note and it says, look up here at me, Dwayne. I was like, looked up at the teacher. She said, yeah, that's right. I've been reading you and Mr. Moyer's jokes for the last few weeks. And you've crossed some lines. Boy, I thought about this small. Because sometimes laughter can be misused, right? She, I, I learned a powerful lesson. And I was, I was very embarrassed. Well, let's consider a story from the Bible that will teach us a little bit more about the playfulness of Jesus. You know, after his resurrection, Jesus delighted in somehow hiding or disguising himself from his disciples and then surprising them. And then kind of, you know, he'd listen and talk to them and then he would make sure they didn't understand who he was at first and he would reveal himself. He liked to surprise them. It's kind of like my friend. I have a, I have a good friend, and um, one time he, he, in his wife's car, it was parked in the garage, and he put one of those Halloween masks on her back, you know, deck in the car. So she, when she went out to the car to leave and she looked back up, she saw this horrible mask there, and she about drove the car through his living room. Man, that was, that was, that took weeks to clean that one up. Uh, that Settle that. Jesus would just pop up and he would surprise his disciples. First, he appeared to them on the road to Emmaus. And then one time they were in the room with the door locked and he just appeared in the room. He walked through the door. And then the third time the Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples. It was about a week after his resurrection. And uh, here's what happened. You know, they, they, they're kind of like, I think they're a little bit at a loss what to do, the disciples. And so Simon Peter said, well, I'm going to go fishing. Jesus wasn't hanging out with them every day. And I don't know what you do when you get a little bored or you don't know what to do. Maybe you go golfing or hiking or running or shopping or cross-stitching. But he said, I'm going to go fishing. And most of the disciples said, okay, we'll come too. And so they all went out in one of the boats and they fished all night and they didn't catch anything. And then the Bible tells us on your outline there in John 21, it says, at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. And he called out, fellas, have you caught any fish? You ever been walking around the lake or river somewhere, somebody's fishing? Don't you want to know if they caught something? Isn't that the question? Or you've ever been fishing? You always ask that. Jesus, just like a regular tourist, hey, you guys catch anything? I think he knew. They said, no. He says, try the other side and you'll get, a, you'll get a lot. And so they did. They got so many they couldn't haul in the net. And that's when John recognized Jesus. And it says, Peter pulled on his clothes. He's out there stripped down fishing pulling that net, the hard work, and he runs to Jesus. And man, just like the first time he met him, when he told him to throw the nets back out in the water, and they did. And he come, they come running in, and what does Jesus do? He says, hey guys, let's have some breakfast. He's already cooked them some fish. And they sit down, and I don't imagine when they're sitting around the, the campfire all the time, they're always serious. 
I mean, Jesus had his serious moments, and we have many of his powerful words recorded, but I know there was joking and laughter, and Jesus like, ah, I got you guys again. Got you again. And that's when, you know, that's when he, the time when he too, he talked to Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? But he was playful with his disciples. He wasn't always serious. And you might say, okay, Dwayne, maybe I can see Jesus was playful. God has a playful side, but why does it really matter? Well, I think there's three very important reasons why it matters. See, the enemy of your soul, he doesn't want you to have an accurate picture of Jesus. He wants you to see, see Jesus as somebody who's stern or strict or unloving or, or unfun, somebody that's not real attractive to be around or to have in your life. And Satan is at work to distort your image of Jesus. And the first reason it matters is when you understand, yes, God is righteous. He's holy. He, he, he calls us on junk in our lives but he's also our loving father. And when you understand his playfulness, number one, it, it makes God more approachable and lovable. It makes God more approachable and lovable. He had an attractive char- character. People flocked to be near him. Parents brought their kids. I can tell you if he was some religious guy always yelling at everybody and mad, I wouldn't take my kids to sit on his lap. What kind of Santa would that be, right? <laughs> I mean, that's you, you would... Parents were attracted to Jesus. Kids were attracted to Jesus because of his, he spoke with authority. He spoke truth, but he spoke it in a loving way. And we already talked about how when, when the children came, it says there in Mark 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. You know, one of my images of God, as a young child, my parents took me to church. I not only went to my kids' class, kids' zone, Sunday school, but I had to go to the worship services every week too. And not just in the morning. We came back Sunday night too. And I had to sit in the service, and I had to be good. I had to be still. <laughs> my mom would bring coloring books and little smarty candies for me to suck on. But let me tell you, there were some Sundays I got walked out of there and I got a spanking. <laughs> and that kind of colored my image of God a little bit. I don't think when Jesus had the little children come to him, he expected them to sit still. I picture Jesus tousling their hair and playing peekaboo and having a little fun with kids. Because that's how God made children to be. For many centuries, when artists painted Jesus' portrait, they didn't put a smile on his face. Uh, one author said he went to this museum that had hundreds of paintings of Jesus and he walked out and he thought not one of them had a picture of Jesus smiling. They look kind of like some of these pictures. It's always kind of serious. Not, not a bad look, but this one's like a little bit like, whoa, look at me. I'm serious. And there's a time and a place for that, right? And there's a time to be serious. Talking to, to Peter. But we didn't see many pictures of Jesus smiling. You know, in the church, it was almost considered blasphemy to talk about or look at Jesus that way. But, but look at some of these more recent paintings. I like the picture of Jesus smiling. I really like this one, Jesus laughing. Probably laughing at something I did. <laughs> Sitting down with his friends. We don't, I don't think we picture Jesus like that most of the time. And I think we need to understand, I, I think those disciples, they followed, I don't think they went with Jesus for three years on a long revival camp meeting where all the time was all serious and all, 
There was a place for that. Jesus taught, crowds came, but I think they withdrew. They got alone together and they had some time as friends. They loved each other. They spent time together. I'm sure they laughed and they teased each other. And it's so important that we know that Jesus smiles with us. You can tell a lot about a person by the company he keeps. You can tell a lot about Jesus that he wanted the little children around him. And look what they said about Jesus. Jesus acknowledged this. He said, for John the Baptist, he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. Remember John the Baptist? He lived out in the the wilderness, the, the camel hair clothes, and eating the locusts. And he was telling him, repent and turn to God. Get ready. And he had a very serious message. And he was pointing people, preparing the way for Jesus to come. But then Jesus said, the son of man, he's talking about himself, came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about Jesus. You might underline that phrase, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Think about that statement. Do you think if Jesus was always preaching and always serious and always correcting people, do you think tax collectors and sinners would want to be his friend? There had to be something about Jesus that drew people to him. He knew how to talk to them about what was going on in in real life, to have a serious conversation, but I think also to talk and play and enjoy being together and enjoy people. I was doing a little research for this topic because you don't find as much about the humor of Jesus out there. And, and I came across a, a book. There was this book called The Humor of Christ written back in the 60s by this famous author. And I was going to buy the book and read it, but then I read a review. And it said, man, this book is great. It points out a lot of fantastic points about the humor of Christ, but it's the most boring book in the world. Can you imagine writing a book about the humor of Jesus and it's boring people to death? Man, if Jesus was boring, people wouldn't want to be with him. Who do you want to hang out with? We're made in the image of God. We, we like to laugh. We like to have a good time together and enjoy things. What do you think it would be like to spend a week with Jesus on a road trip? Four-hour car ride up to Lake Tahoe. You get there in your cab. What do you think it would be like? Does that feel like that might be fun? Or are you going, like, I don't know. <laughs> Man, I, I think... Jesus, people wanted to hang out with Jesus. They wanted to be around him. Let's shift perspective for just a moment. My my friends in Hayward and my friends in Fremont, what do you think Jesus thinks about you? Would he he think it's fun to go on a trip to Tahoe with you? Man, I think he'd love to hang out with you, get to know you, influence you. You know, in, in the Old Testament, God had to punish Israel because they disobeyed him. He had to discipline them like a a heavenly father would do. But then he gives them this word pointing to Jesus. He says, the Lord your God is with you. Things are going to change. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Can you picture Jesus rejoicing over you? You know, the Bible says when one person comes back to God, There's rejoicing in heaven. There's a party. There's a celebration. People matter to Jesus. You matter to Jesus. You can put a smile on his face. When you're you're walking with him and doing life with him and trying your best to live for him, man, he rejoices over you. He loves you. And you put a smile on his face. Second reason it's important to understand the playfulness of Jesus, it blesses Christ and our health when we enjoy his gifts. 
Paul said this to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Can you underline that phrase? He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God's made this amazing world. We sang the song, God of Wonders, Beyond the Galaxy. He made everything, a world of variety and beauty, fearsome creatures, funny creatures. God gave us five senses to be able to see and taste and touch and experience this amazing place he made. And when you buy, you know, when you buy a gift for your kids, you love to see them enjoying that gift. Proverbs says this, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Medical research shows, shows that laughter has a role in fighting viruses, bacteria, cancer, and heart disease. It's also known to release chemicals that fight stress and help you relax. Many doctors will attest to the incredible discrepancy between patients with a sense of humor versus those weighed down by fear. Both patients experience the same pain, the same inconsistencies, the same inconveniences, and the same di diagnosis. Yet the one whose heart is filled with joy can experience a greater degree of healing. Attitude is huge. So many people think Christians are boring sticks in the mud who don't know how to enjoy life, but nothing should be further from the truth. God's given us himself, a relationship with him and this world to enjoy. The third thing, playfulness is more attractive to seekers. See, God wants you, to, the first thing we talked about is God wants you as a believer to be able to relate to Jesus and understand him and enjoy sharing life with him. To take him into every part of your life, not just to compartmentalize. And God wants us to enjoy his creation for our health, our, our emotional health, our physical health. But he also wants us to live out the joy and happiness that he's designed us for and that he's given us. A lot of people think, you know, going to church and hanging out with people who go to church, it's going to be boring and no fun. And it shouldn't be like that at all. Look what it says in Psalms. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, of Israel, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. God changed their lives. They, they, they reentered that relationship with God. They were walking through life with God. And the same should be true for us who are walking through life with Jesus. It should change our lives. We're going to have struggles, we're going to have challenges, we're going to have hardships, but we should respond with hope. We should be able to laugh about knowing that this world is not all there is and that we're not alone, that God is with us. And we go and we face life and it should change. Israel's neighbors looked at them and they said, wow, their mouth is filled with laughter. Look what God's done for them. Man, is that what people who look at your life would say? Man, look what God has done for them, how he's changed them. How do they handle all the hardships, all the problems, all the issues? Yeah, they gripe and complain sometimes, but then they turn to hope in Christ and their joy. What makes them different? Professor Robert Hodgkin said this. He said, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. Man, does your life reflect that you truly know Jesus? That you truly have him in your life? That he's, he's giving you hope? He's filling you with his presence, with his peace, and his purpose? 
And in the midst of your struggles, you know you're not alone. That Jesus, who loves you, who rejoices over you, is with you. Okay? Jesus takes our sin very seriously. He's going to correct us. He's going to discipline us. He died for our sin. But he doesn't hold us against, against us when we confess it. And he wants to enjoy a relationship with you. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming, for leaving heaven to come and, and live and set an example for us, show us the heart of the Father. God, we love you. Help us to understand that you're not always upset with us or stern or strict, but you've created this world, this place for us to to have life and to have fun and to give us meaning and purpose. God, help us to experience the joy that comes from knowing you, the freedom from being released from our guilt, the freedom to live in a relationship with you and to know that in spite of all the hardships and troubles we go through here on earth, you're with us and we know that there's something better coming. God, we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.